one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today I have with me Nicole Sales. She is the business director of digital art sales at Christie's. In this role, she's responsible for the business strategy and operations of the firm's NFT program. She joined Christie's in 2012 and has, built, has held various positions primarily within the 20th and 21st century art departments. She has an MBA from Columbia Business School and a BA in art history and economics from Duke. Nicole, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So, how was Miami? How was Art Basel? Basel. Yeah, our Basel was insane. I am physically exhausted, but it was a very productive week. Everyone was talking about NFTs. It was kind of crazy. I mean, being from Christie's, I was kind of straddling the traditional art world and the NFT space, so kind of going back and forth from the various events and everyone from newbies to crypto natives or trying to see what what's going on in the space and very excited. So for people who aren't familiar, could you maybe describe <laughs> what this event <laughs> is it's a pretty large tent right so there's a lot going on yeah. there but give people a sense of what the bacnalian type setup is there sure so people refer to art basel as just the whole week of miami but art basel in and of itself is the main art fair for all of the very well known galleries come down and show a selection of their you know best artists and you know a lot is sold there are vip days there are then public days so it's a huge event and then alongside it there are several other art fairs that pop up so there's design miami which is right across the street there's untitled art fair which is on the beach then there's 
Art Miami context. And now there are all these NFT and crypto fairs and events popping up during the same week. So there was a DecentralCon, which is a two-day crypto conference in the same week. I spoke at a panel during that. And then Christie's, we had a event where we showcased about 20 or 25 NFT artworks alongside the NFT now. And we sold them all on OpenSea just yesterday, actually. So do you think this Art Basel, the event that you just attended, are we now officially in the post-COVID world in terms of the art space? From an art market perspective, 100%. I think the market is 100% back to po- to pre-COVID levels, like without a doubt. And our November sales were incredibly strong. The, the, the market is super hot, both on the supply and demand side. I think a lot of people were holding their great property during the height of COVID because, you know, they were with all the uncertainty, not sure if it's the best time to sell. So a combination of a lot of great art coming to the market all at the same time. And a lot of, a lot of people who got who you know, got quite wealthy during COVID, you know, wanting to buy some hard assets. So I think from a market perspective, definitely from an events perspective, you know, there's still, even though we were in, you know, Florida, there's still, you know, some hesitancy in terms of in-person events. I think there are, of course, capacity restrictions for events. So they weren't quite as, you know, crazy as some of the uh, Miami events I've seen get before. And I want to get into what's happening in your world presently, but give us a snapshot of what it looked like during COVID for you all. Yeah. In Christie's in general, you mean? Yeah. The market, transactions. I know there were a lot of private broker yeah. type deals happening, but obviously yeah, there weren't the traditional type in-person auctions and we're curious how this kind of jump-started this transition to the digital space that a lot of the auction houses are now entering. Yeah, totally. So, actually, before my role in in NFTs, which you know started kind of mid twenty twenty one, I was overseeing our private sale and online sale division from a business perspective, you know, for our contemporary art department. So, our live auctions, you know, basically came to a complete halt in the end of March twenty twenty. And private sales completely skyrocketed. And we worked to move a lot of our, you know, upcoming property to our online sales if it made sense or sell things privately. And a lot of clients who had great works to sell because of the uncertainty preferred to sell them privately, you know, less risk for them. And, you know, if they're, if it doesn't sell or the price wasn't quite as high. So private sales really skyrocketed and saw almost a, almost at a hundred percent increase from 2019, honestly, in 2020. So I think the market was still there for people who wanted to sell for good pieces, you know, people will come out and buy them, but the live auction certainly came to a halt. We only just started having actually in September or actually first week of October, we just of 2021, we just started having people in the room again for our live auction. So it's been a slow come back to the drama of an auction room, but we completely transformed our digital experience for live auctions. So we made it much more accessible to enter the auction, the live auction room digitally and, and virtually. So we've, you know, we've worked with various production companies and, and made it, you know, an experience. Right. And that's one of the big shifts that I want to talk about in this post COVID space that really seemed to be ushered in by the Sotheby's transaction that took place. There, That group had some ideas about how they wanted to pivot from the traditional kind of auction business. And the experiential service was one of the things that I wanted to hit on. There's in many people's minds kind of this concept that 
you all are just pitching $100 million Picassos in a stuffy room with a bunch of really old, rich, white people. How is this shift to this millennial desire for education, access, networking, and experience pushed through to your business? Yeah. So at Christie's, you know, we have sales really for everyone. I mean, I think starting, you know, I think there's a stereotype that Christie's is, you know, old and stuffy. And like you said, sells to old white men buying $100 million per passive. But we have sales in the contemporary art department for sure that start it. You know, we have a sale going on right now, first open online, which the, there are things at $1,000, $5,000 that you can buy. So I think from a branding perspective, we are definitely trying to reach more of an audience and we definitely have been reaching more of an audience. And the NFT boom that we've experienced in 2021 and Christie's is really the forefront and leader in that from a you know traditional art world auction perspective is, you know, we are bringing in so many new clients. It's kind of remarkable. We've had an unbelievable amount of new clients. I mean, the average age, for example, for our people, the people that sold back in March, the everyday is for 69 million. The average age was 36 to be bidding on that, which is incredibly low compared to what our average age is for an evening sale level work. And how much of this shift towards away from the traditional modern art space where you all were, are so dominant historically into NFTs, sneakers, luxury fashion. I'm hesitant to say non-traditional because these things, you know, had been transacted before, but obviously not a huge focus for you. How much of that was driven by the business plan that you all had internally versus this desire and this pent-up demand within this new millennial generational cohort that has, you know, money to spend and wants access to this type of luxury good? Yeah, I mean, I think Christie's in general, our strategy is always to sell the best of the best and to sell what the market wants. So whether that is an ancient Ming vase or an NFT or a sneaker or a Basquiat painting, that's what we're going to sell. And we, you know, we very closely follow market trends. We talk to several collectors. We have, you know, ear to the ground with, with everyone in all the communities that we need to be in. And once we hear, you know, rumblings, then we develop a much more robust business plan. So I would say the answer to that question is definitely both, you know, following the Beeple auction in March, when I just mentioned, we took stock of that and definitely made a very concerted effort internally to ramp this up, to invest heavily in our NFT strategy. And, you know, we've been quite successful this year. We sold over nearly 150 million in top line sales just this year in NFTs. And it seems pretty clear that that dovetails with bringing on, is Nita Whitney with your firm, right? And she's yeah. really comes from more of a digital marketing, social media background. And she, it, it seems pretty clear that she is pushing the firm into the modern era in terms of education, thought leadership, and broadening these distribution channels, both from a product side and, and a services side. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Netta is our head of marketing. She's great. She's definitely involved in all aspects. So, you know, head of marketing for everything. So yeah, definitely like very much working on our NFT, on our NFT programming from a marketing perspective, but, you know, also our luxury goods and, you know, our classics art as well. And, you know, kind of everything that goes along with Christie's. But like I said before, we have a ton of new clients and, you know, we just need to listen to our clients and which we have been doing and, you know, catering to the emerging collectors. On the topic of new clients, you mentioned some statistics about the average age and 
kind of the income, the wealth. It seems like a large portion of these, you know, clients of yours that are new are coming from Silicon Valley as well as the Asian market. Can you comment on why you think that is and how much that had had an impact on your business? Yeah, I mean, I'd say there are a handful from Silicon Valley, but I mean, in general, I think the percentage of new clients is in line with where the wealth is in the world. So I think, you know, most of the wealth that we're at least in the art collecting community is in America. So that's been, you know, about half of our new clients. And then Asia, following that, Asia and Europe are pretty much, you know, in line there. I think, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the new clients, particularly with NFTs, obviously, are coming from the crypto native community who made a lot of money in crypto early on. And, you know, now we are giving them an actual asset that they can use their money for. <laughs> um, so that's nice. And then these, we've seen several of those clients then transition into buying, you know, tangible, tangible art from us. It just seems like you're able to establish a beachhead with some of these, you know, traditionally crypto investors and then, you know, introduce them to the other suite of services that you all can provide to them once you kind of build that relationship, right? Yes. Yes, totally. So along those lines, you know, famously, you mentioned the Beeple sale and one of the largest buyers there is a professional crypto investor and he actually purchased it in Ether, right? So to what extent is this kind of growth in NFT purchasing, as well as just the growth of your business in general, a product of this run-up in crypto pricing and this huge new population of investors that have have made money in crypto versus the natural cyclical nature of, of turning over your traditional client base? I think it's definitely related to you know the crypto boom. I think similar to what I said before, I mean, these are assets that we are allowing our clients to pay in crypto. So you know, I think it's one of the only assets that you can pay that you can, you know, you can't go to the grocery store right now and pay in Bitcoin for your milk. You can, you know, you can buy a piece of art at Christie's with Bitcoin, you know, select works that we're offering that service for. So I think it's definitely fueled by that. And, you know, I think the beginning is fueled by that. I think once you're in it, then I think you're collecting and trading NFTs, you know, for potentially other reasons. You know, there's, I think you should always be buying art for aesthetic reasons. I think it's always the way you should be doing that. Obviously, NFTs have a much more speculative undertone to them, which, you know, makes sense. You know, they're tradable assets. So, but yeah, I think, I think definitely correlated to, to, to cryptocurrencies. To follow up on that, you know, the crypto space has a share of characters, right? And it has some issues in the past with, you know, vulnerabilities, both from a technological and a provenance standpoint. How do you all think about addressing those concerns as you look to build out this particular subject matter expertise that you have in-house? Yeah, that's a big that's a big question that we're thinking about daily. I think from a liability perspective, you know, we currently we don't take custody of any of the NFTs. So we don't take custody of those assets. So they stay with the seller while they're being sold on Christie's and then they tr- get transferred on chain directly from seller to buyer. Whereas all the bidding happens off chain on Christie's.com. Um, that's separate from our sale we recently just did with OpenSea, which was more of a, we curated an auction and put it on OpenSea. So that was all on chain, all in Ethereum, all kind of automatic transfers of assets and transfers of funds. So that that, that aside, but the works that we're selling on Christie's.com, so we are 
handling that liability, you know, kind of very conservatively for now. There aren't great companies yet that are, that I've seen at least, that are providing insurance, enough insurance at a high enough value for Christie's to start taking custody of these assets. We'll see in the future. I think the space is changing very rapidly. So, you know, this might, this might change in, you know, a week, a month, a year's time. So that's from the insurance point from a KYC perspective. It's also, it's also been a bit challenging. I think the whole nature of anonymity and decentralization that buyers and crypto buyers, the benefits that they get by buying on the blockchain is that you don't have to kind of, you know, reveal yourself so much. But from a Christie's perspective, we need to uphold our brand. We need to, you know, act in the best interests of our sellers. So we do need to still collect all this information. So we're definitely trying to, from a client management perspective, been trying to toe the line there. Could you break down some of the references you just made in terms of on-chain, off-chain, custody, and maybe related to what some of us think as your kind of traditional business model of how you worked with clients? Sure. So first of all, just to define some of those, those terms, when I say on-chain, off-chain, I mean on the blockchain, off of the blockchain. So on-chain is that all the transactions are recorded automatically on the blockchain, so on a digital ledger. So that's, you know, you can see where the money comes from, where the money goes to. You can see who bid even on blockchain. You know, you can see so-and-so, and it could be an, an, an anonymous name, you know, you know, client OXB135 bid, you know, 50 ETH. 50 Ethereum. And then, you know, you can see the next person. And then as soon as it's, you know, the bid is accepted, you can actually see where the asset is being transferred, where the NFT is being transferred. Off-chain, you know, it happens on Christie's.com, like a normal e-commerce site. Like you go on eBay, you click bid, you know, it's like that. There's no blockchain kind of associated on the back end of that. So custody, by us not taking custody, there's no record on the blockchain of it going from like, let's say you, Brian, or you're the seller and you're selling it to me, it would go from, you know, if everything was on chain, you would see, you could go into the blockchain, you could see the asset, the NFT went from Brian to Christie's to Nicole. Right now, we're not taking any custody of that. So we're not taking possession, quote unquote, of that NFT. So it's, you're just seeing the asset go from Brian to Nicole. How that compares to our business model for tangible goods and tangible assets that we sell, you know, we obviously, we take possession of everything that we sell. So when we're selling a Picasso, for example, that comes to Christie's, we do our due diligence, we look at the painting, we have, you know, our entire team inspecting it for days, doing research on it, looking at the back, looking at the frame and, you know, exhibiting it and all of that. And then we hold that painting at Christie's until the buyer pays us. And then we give the painting to the buyer and then we then pay out the seller. So that kind of order of events is very different for our NFT sales. And from a due diligence perspective, you know, it's a technical due diligence. We're looking at the metadata and we can do that digitally. And famously, one of the things that distinguishes your firms from other groups that do this is your ability to have guaranteed auctions or things on reserve. Are you able to do that with an NFT space today, considering how new it is and nuanced? I would say we can do anything. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, we definitely have reserves for our auctions that we sell, which is the minimum price that the seller is willing to accept. You know, we definitely had that. We had that with our open sea sale, which was on chain. So yeah, we can definitely do that. From a guarantee perspective, yes, we could do that as well. A guarantee for those who don't know is when, you know, Christie's 
the house, the auction house guarantees the seller a minimum price. And then even if it doesn't sell for that price at auction, the seller still gets that amount. And then if it sells for above that, there's usually a revenue split between the guarantor and the seller. Could you talk a little bit about pre-NFT, pre-COVID, how you all worked with private galleries or private dealers, commercial galleries, and how that shifted with post-COVID and with some of this empowerment that you've seen within the artistic community as well? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, pre-NFTs, pre-digital art boom, artists, at least, and I'm talking about contemporary artists, you know, most all of the artists that we sell at Christie's are already represented by galleries. So they already have um, major markets, major communities, major comparable prices, galleries represent them, they've had shows, they've been in museums, there's criteria that you kind of need to hit before getting to a Christie's auction. And the galleries are, you know, there to quote unquote, protect their artists sometimes at auction. And a lot of times galleries will buy at auction to then resell. We work very closely with galleries. We're not really in competition with them. We like working with them. They promote their great artists and it's good. In a post NFT boom world, a lot of these artists are very new. So they're not yet represented by galleries. A lot of galleries aren't yet getting into this space. So they don't really know how to represent these artists. We're actually seeing a lot more talent agencies representing artists as opposed to art galleries, which is interesting. But in general, a lot of these are primary sales. So Christie's is generally, you know, we're a brokerage house. We sell art from one collector to another collector. In the digital art world, it's pretty much we're selling directly from the artist to auction, which is pretty rare. I mean, it's very rare for an artist's first sale to be with an auction house. Usually they're with a gallery or they're with a small gallery first, and then they get picked up by a large gallery and then they come to Christie's. It's been really nice and refreshing, honestly, to work directly with artists and to be promoting their stories and instead of the like necessarily the collector story. And do you worry at all that this trend line towards decentralization and direct access, like you just mentioned, working with the artist directly or the talent directly, does it concern you all that the relevance that you all have as working as an intermediary, as a brokerage firm to facilitate these type of transactions? So I think that there's always going to be a need for curation and for legitimacy in the space. It's currently incredibly saturated. And I think, you know, Christie's will always play a part in helping collectors sift through that saturation. And, you know, we have a discerning eye, so to speak, um, in order to curate these sales and to, yeah, I mean, give legitimacy to a lot of a lot of what these artists are doing. Yeah, it was a little bit of an unfair question. I mean, this is a big <laughs> question, right? And who's to say what's going to happen in the future? But I agree with you. I think actually more and more people are going to want a docent of taste or of culture to be able to help guide them through this world, especially if they don't come from a multi-generational family that has that exposure to art or antiques, right? And this, this new population of investors, they may not be as savvy. And so they need that education from a group like yours. Yeah. It's, it's at least my opinion. Well, we agree. So we were both right. <laughs> I want to get a little bit deeper into one of the comments you made about being able to work directly with the artists it's really interesting that you that you mentioned that they're being represented by talent agencies now versus kind of private galleries. Can you talk a little bit about how this NFT digitalization tokenization of assets has allowed some artists who were, you know, that stereotypical starving artist be able to actually finally monetize their work and and also 
the way that the blockchain functions, it also allows them to have you know potential future profit share or better economics than they would have maybe in a pre-NFT world. Yeah, totally. So I think so to address your first point about the talent agency that we're seeing, I think a lot of what makes NFT-based artists, digital artists successful is creating a marketing around them, creating a community and kind of like a celebrity as opposed to, you know, historically what many galleries have done. So I think it does make sense. It was interesting at first, but it does make sense that a lot of these talent agencies are popping up, you know, like CAA is representing a lot, you know, UTA, things like that, you know, representing these, either these collections or these digital artists. You need to have a community in order to be successful. There's to have secondary sales and to, you know, create hype around your project. So that's to the first point. I think the second point about the monetization of these artists, I think, so yes, the blockchain and so smart contracts, which are basically the code behind these NFTs, you could write into that anything. A lot of what's written into these smart contracts when NFTs are minted are resale royalties. So unlike, you know, a contemporary artist that's selling on the wall of a gallery, that they're kind of the transactions are happening person to person in real life. And you don't really know when that's happening. It's very opaque on the blockchain. Everything is recorded. It's very transparent. So if there is a secondary sale, a lot of what's written into the code is that automatically the artist will get say 10% of the sale price, like sent to their wallet automatically as soon as the funds are transferred. And that can't be kind of undone. Obviously there are loopholes, you know, you could always sell it off chain. You can sell it on a different chain. So there are, you know, I think the tech is still pretty new that it's great, but there's a long way to go in order to make it 100% enforceable. But it is a really big step from where we were before. So I think artists, whether visual artists or music artists, also are starting to take a lot of advantage in this space to kind of take back their royalties. Does the environmental impact associated with NFTs concern you all at all? And are the things that you're doing to be proactive around that world? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Definitely concerning. I think from a Christie's perspective, we've made, you know, strides in that we are committed to buying carbon offsets for the transactions that we have been a part of, you know, at the end of each year. So, you know, really excited that our company is, you know, at the forefront of that and and taking a stance on that. I think there are certain blockchains that are more environmentally friendly than others. So I think to that point, I will just say, you know, NFT is just one usage of the blockchain. And it's just because there's a lot of hype, it's getting a lot of attention that that's very poor for the environment. But basically anything that you're doing on the blockchain is equally as poor for the environment. And I will say, you know, Christie's, it's a lot better than shipping huge, gigantic sculptures, you know, around the world from a carbon footprint perspective. And I will say that the technology, again, is incredibly new, and there's a lot of smart people working on this. So I think that this, you know, the carbon emissions on this will get less and less, you know, month after month. You talked about this in terms of other artists or product types or or services that are now entering the space. What are some of the most exciting areas that you see developing because of this underlying blockchain technology and NFTs now entering into the investors or, or collectors' mind space? Yeah, I mean, I think I'll call out two, but I think NFT technology has the potential to, you know, seep into almost any industry. But I think music is a big one. I think, you know, a very small number of record labels control a pretty dominant portion of 
music artists. So I think the ability for musicians to collect royalties on their songs when they're played is a huge asset. And then secondly, I'll just mention more of the like utility tokens. So for example, ticketing, you know, having your ticket on the blockchain can be really safe, you know, in terms of, you know, no forgeries with that, you know, those sort of things where an NFT gives you access to something as opposed to just a digital asset that you can hold and then sell for its inherent value. It gives you kind of real world implications. So along those lines, in terms of what the future holds for your industry, is the metaverse the new frontier for you all? Yeah, I mean, we're definitely thinking of, you know, metaverse experiences, whether that's events or auctions or just meeting up with people. But yeah, I mean, I don't think we'll ever fully replace the desire to see a painting in real life. You know, I don't think anything can replace that. But certainly for the NFT, you know, community and for for buying and selling NFTs, it's, you know, the metaverse is, you know, definitely the place where people seem to be going. And, you know, the metaverse is a very large term. You know, I think what it really means is a place where people can interact virtually and experience things, interact with each other and pick up on those experience those experiences. It's not just a website that's, you know, it's not just, you know, Facebook rebranding, you know, it's something larger than that. And I think we have yet to see the real, the real implications of that, but certainly Christie's is, you know, at the forefront of figuring out what we're doing in the area. And have you seen a lot of appetite recently for people to get back into the room and do live auctions again in person? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So like I said, early October was the first time we let clients back in the room. But November was our, you know, major, major auction, auction week in New York. And, you know, we had overflow of people wanting to come in. Obviously, we kept the capacity, you know, low due to, you know, COVID restrictions, but we had a huge, huge demand for people coming in person. And, and, you know, we had an exhibition open for about two weeks before the auction. And there were tons of people flying in to see the art. I agree with you. I think the metaverse will just kind of be an extension of what you're already seeing within the auction space when we have for a long time, right? People using proxies or phones or Zoom, digital, but there's still something to be said for, and we referenced this earlier, the in-person and then plus the add-ons, right? Like the after party, the speaker that comes in, the docent that explains, you know, what you're buying and, and what the relevance is in a historical cultural context. I think all right. of that will still really resonate with the population that you serve. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think doing these sorts of events, both in real life and in the metaverse, will only help us reach a large audience. Moving forward. Do you think the percentage money that flows through firms like yours that is crypto-based will be more or less than what what it has been the last 12 months? Uh, I think it will increase. Yeah. I mean, I think the space is only growing. I think, you know, as of now, you know, we've been experimenting with taking crypto for non-NFT works, but I see that, you know, potentially growing as we, you know, scale this part of our business for sure. How do you, as a firm discuss internally maintaining the iconic brand that is Christie's? How do you think about, I've heard the concept brand affinity or brand halo used in regards to your shop. I would love to hear kind of internally how you message that and build upon what is an iconic brand in the space. Yeah. So kind of what I said earlier, you know, we think of Christie's as selling the best of the best, whether that's jewelry or a sneaker or a painting or an NFT. So I think it's, you know, we're still sticking to our brand by selling 
kind of the CryptoPunks, which are, you know, one of the most historic NFT projects and, you know, very well known in the space. So I think we're still sticking to our brand there. But yeah, I mean, we get pitched countless projects a day, honestly. We have a small team dedicated to NFTs right now. And we're hearing, you know, I would say three to five pitches a day, each of us. And so, you know, we meet to discuss kind of those pitches and what works, what doesn't. And and a lot of it is just, you know, the brands, you know, aren't at Christie's level or it doesn't jive with what our values are or it's not, you know, high end enough. I think you know, that's not to say that we're, we only work with luxury brands. I mean, you know, we're still, we're going to work with the best of the best. So we're very happy to work with startups and, you know, more edgy brands and edgy projects that they just have to be the best of what they're doing. Historically, it was kind of debt divorce that led to a lot of these large auction type events happening. Do you think that will still be the case moving forward? Or has something fundamentally shifted because of NFTs and, and the digitalization in terms of Will there be other catalysts for these type of transactions, in your opinion? You know, I think the catalysts for selling and selling NFTs are certainly not the DDDs. They are, you know, it's a lot of it is speculative and, you know, financially beneficial for the seller. And, but I think from a traditional art world perspective, I don't think those DDDs are going away. I think the ease at which you can sell an NFT enables, you know, allows for the, ability to flip these things very quickly from a financial perspective, whereas selling tangible art, it's not quite as easy to sell tangible art quite as quickly. What's your definition of luxury? Good one. I would say, you know, a brand, a brand or a product that when customers own it, they feel a sense of, you know, pride and higher kind of self-worth than maybe what the monetary value was that they purchased it for. And do you think your ideal customer profile, your avatar, your millennial tech, crypto, bro, punk, do (laughs) they share that definition in your opinion? I think that they do, honestly. I think so. Just being in Miami and seeing people on their Apple watches, having their crypto punk, you know, and finding ways to show off that they own this is like walking through the fair. There are maybe three or four companies now that are trying to, if you own an NFT, trying to turn it into a t-shirt or turning it into a headband or a bracelet or a sweatshirt or something like that, that only if you own it, can you do that? So there are so many ways where these owners are trying to brag that they have this, which is the same thing in the traditional art world. So I don't think that that's going away. And and yeah, I think that they share that. You've been a good sport. I've been peppering you with questions, but I've got one last <laughs> lightning round. Great. We're okay. recording this at the end of 2021. Yeah. It's December. I don't know when this is going to go live, but is Duke going to win the national championship in basketball <laughs> this year or what? Yes. Yes. Mm. We have to. It's Coach Hayes last year. We owe it to them. We owe it to the world. So I really hope so. We've been looking good. We had a terrible last game against Ohio, but our Zaga game was really boosted my confidence. So I'm excited to see where we go. I ask all Duke people the same thing. And it's always <laughs> like this real sense of optimism, like, of course. And then there's always the caveat of, well, I don't know, maybe we'll see, yeah. you know, we look better, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. But I we like got to protect. We got to protect ourselves. See, we've had some really devastating losses in the past like decade. So, which I, I won't name because I don't want to draw attention, but they're pretty terrible. Mm. Well, I love your positivity. <laughs> Before we finish out, we connected at a family office conference. You put on a great presentation. You put out unbelievable content, obviously 
Chrissy's is a wealth of knowledge and great human capital. What's the best way for people to connect with you to learn more about some of the events that you're putting on the educational series and if they're interested mm-hmm. in participating in some of your offerings? Yeah. So, well, me personally, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at at Nicole A. Sales, N-I-C-O-L-E-A-S-A-L-E-S. And then Christie's, you can just sign up for our newsletter. You can go to Christie's.com, create an account, indicate what your interests are, and then you'll get weekly newsletters about auctions that are taking place, events that are taking place in that area. Awesome, Nicole. Thank you so much for joining us. This is something coming from me, not from you. I'm going to protect your reputation here, but my wife's aunt works at Christie's and she was the first one to tell me when I mistakenly said that she worked at Sotheby's that Sotheby's are auctioneers trying to be gentlemen. Christie's are are gentlemen trying to be auctioneers. And you certainly have put forth a great foot. The firm is incredible, a true, like I said earlier, icon in the industry. And I want to thank you for your time and expertise. Thank you. Thank you. It was really fun talking with you. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.